We're back in Hebrews chapter 10. If you'd look there, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 25 today. Uh, we began the text last week and saw that our author issued a threefold appeal to Christ's people. He calls us to live upward, to live forward, and to live outward. We'll read it again. This time we're going to include verse 25, which we left off last week. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 25. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The upward dimension is found in verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Our lives exist on a three-dimensional plane. It's the trigonometry of the soul. The fundamental coordinate, or triordinate, as the case may be, for locating your Christian life has to do with your relationship to God. The other two ordinates are relative to and dependent upon this one. Your relationship to God, the distance between you and him, or to be more precise, whether you are at this moment moving closer to him or drifting further from him, is what defines you. So moving toward or drifting away, which one of those best describes you today? Is it your intention, and are you actively pursuing that intention to draw near to God? See, people rarely move closer to him without intending to do so. If we're not moving toward God, we're drifting from him. The forward dimension comes in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Hope is forward-looking. That is, it's oriented toward the future. We don't hope for what we have at present. Who hopes for what he already has, St. Paul asks. Hope connects us to tomorrow and the next day and on into eternity. If your relationship to God defines you as a person, your relationship to the future determines that person's outlook. So are you hopeful for the future? Or have the obstacles of the present loosened your grip on hope? Has the confession of your hope gone silent? Now you might be thinking... What on earth do I have to be hopeful for? Well, if you have nothing on earth to be hopeful for, then be hopeful for heaven. Lyakloff tells the story of taking communion to a church member who was dying of cancer. The dying man, Larry Hildreth, was too weak to come to church, so Akloff went to him. Hildreth was only in his 30s with a wife and children. Today, when Akloff remembers that visit... He says, I heard holy things. Hildreth said to him, even if I have a short time to live, God has given me great hope. Death has lost its sting. Then Hildreth said to him, at the point in my life when I'm the weakest, I'm the strongest I've ever been. 
The two men started talking about Hildreth's funeral, which, as it turned out, was exactly one month to the day later. He wanted lots of singing. The only thing I want people to think on that day, he said, is joy. And then he raised his hands to offer a slow, triumphant clap. When I pass into his kingdom, he said, I envision the spectacular light, the spectacular feeling of being able to let go. And then he said, I felt a lot of grief for my children, my wife, my family, myself. But I've had to get over that. And once you get past that, you know that God is there. And there's that spirit of joyfulness. I'm, it's going to be a happy day for me. He said, no grief for me. Here was a man facing death and all that goes with it, including the sad parting from his wife and his children. He was nevertheless full of life because he lived in hope. He was able to live forward under those circumstances because he was living upward. You can live forward too. Whatever your situation, you can have hope if you're living upward. Verse 24 introduces the outward dimension. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Outward is the most obvious dimension in life. It's difficult to know if a person's living upward. It's easy to fake, for a while anyway. And we really have to spend time with a person, get to know him, to know whether or not he's living forward. But it doesn't make, take much time to learn whether or not a person's living outward. It's the outward dimension that our Lord was thinking of when he told his disciples, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know, because it's so outward, that you're my disciples if you love one another. Often when someone talks about how we ought to act as Christians, he jumps right to this dimension of the Christian life. It's the most obvious. It's the sign that we're Jesus followers. <clears throat> but it's a mistake to start here. This dimension of our Christian life is relative to and dependent upon the other two. If you're not living upward, moving toward God in faith, and not living forward, moving toward the future in hope, you'll not be able to sustain the movement outward toward others in love. When this message has been given today, I hope and expect that God will speak to many of us about our relationship to each other. I trust that we'll have an idea of how to proceed in loving one another and an intention to do so. But unless the other two coordinates are right, we're moving upward toward God in faith, forward toward the future in hope. Our ideas and even our intentions to move outward towards each other in love will have little chance of success. Look again at verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The verb that the NIV translates here as consider often has a visual connotation. So in chapter 12, the NIV translates this same verb this way. Let us fix our eyes. It's the same verb. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. An English term that captures both nuances, the, the visual, fix our eyes, and the rational, consider, is the word reflect. Let's reflect on one another. The NIV translation seems to place the emphasis on methodology. Let us 
consider how we may spur one another on. In Greek, the emphasis is not on how, but on who. Let us consider one another. It's literal. We can't carry out this command by focusing on some relational technique that we learned from Dale Carnegie or in some seminar somewhere, but by focusing on people. We are to consider, to reflect on, to look thoughtfully at each other with the intention to spur one another on to love and to good deeds. The verb to spur translates a colorful noun in Greek, paroxysmos, from which we get our English word paroxysm. In English, a paroxysm is a fit. It's a convulsion, a spasm, an outburst, usually of anger. That fits well with the words only other use in the New Testament. In Acts 15, the good friends Paul and Barnabas, and I quote, had such a sharp disagreement, that's our word, they had a paroxysm, they had an outburst, a provocation, that they parted company. Here the author wants us to thoughtfully reflect on how to start a paroxysm, an outburst, but not of anger, rather of love. The English makes it sound like it's my job to stir you up to love and good deeds. But the Greek isn't so specific. My focused consideration of you, I think about you, I pray about you, I pray for you, I hold you in my mind. My focused consideration of you leads to an outburst of love from you, from me, from all of us. And it's true, isn't it, that the only way to stir up love in someone else, the only way to stir up love in someone else is by loving them. We think, and books and TV have told us that it's so, that love just happens. We can't control love. We're told it controls us. But our author doesn't buy that. Love requires thought and action. Didn't Jesus tell us, do to others as you would have them do to you? Try to follow that instruction without engaging in thoughtful and often very complex reflection on others. It's impossible. The love our author's talking about isn't just warm emotion. It issues in good deeds, to love and good deeds. In Greek, those two terms are as close as can be. It's not love and also good deeds, not love or good deeds. The idea is love expressed in good deeds, in action. That's what the church is supposed to look like, a virtual riot of good deeds. Each person outdoing his friend in respect and consideration People going out of their way to help, to encourage, to please one another. The church, a place of happiness and brotherhood and love. That is not what comes to most people's minds when they think of church. Think of what an impact it would have if it was what came to people's minds. If your neighbors and coworkers thought of the church as the place to be for friendship and love and fun and happiness... Instead, they've been led to believe by critics and sometimes, let's be honest, by us that churches are judgmental, negative organizations that people only belong to out of some misplaced sense of duty. Lockwood can be the church that surprises people. 
that catches them off guard, blows away the fictional stereotype. And if there was ever an opportunity, it's now. The world's changing. Friendship has changed. Community is more and more difficult to find. William Dershowitz has written, friendship is devolving from a relationship to a feeling, from something people share to something each of us hugs privately to ourselves in the loneliness of our electronic caves. That's friendship in the Facebook age. Contemporary society provides the perfect backdrop for real friendship and community. But if friendship and community, love and good deeds, are to happen, we must spend time together. So our author continues in verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Now, in the NIV, if you're using NIV, at least in my 1984 NIV, this verse starts just like the previous three and sounds like a fourth appeal. But in the original language, this verse is grammatically dependent on the previous one. It explains in more detail verse 24's appeal to consider one another. We could translate it, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not abandoning our gatherings. Abandon is a strong word that's used here. It's the same word the evangelist used when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same word that Paul used when he said, Demas, because he loved the present world, has forsaken me. We can't answer the plea of verse 24 to consider one another in a riot of love and good deeds if we're not meeting together. And our author lets us in on the fact that some people have already abandoned the gatherings. They were deserters. They were absent without leave. Now, we don't know why they were absent. Perhaps the pressure that we've talked about over the weeks as we've studied Hebrews, the pressure from friends and family members was wearing them down. Every time they went to a meeting of the church, they had an argument with their friends or their family. It was just easier not to go. Or maybe it was laziness that kept them away from the church, not persecution. Remember that our author told them straight out he didn't want them to become lazy. He saw the potential there. He warned them that they were in danger of drifting away. In 2008, the Orthodox Church in Russia discovered that it had lost a church building, literally. The building had been unused for about a decade. But since church attendance was rising again, they hoped to reopen the 200-year-old building that was northeast of Moscow, but they couldn't because they couldn't find it. Now, how do you lose a two-story church building? Aliens. <laughs> it wasn't that. It wasn't an earthquake. It wasn't bombed or bulldozed. How did it disappear? Very slowly. People from a nearby village started selling bricks from the building to a local company for four cents a brick. Over the years, they completely tore down the building. There wasn't anything left. It was just gone. That was a church building, but something similar can happen to a church family. Church families are not usually destroyed by one devastating event. They're dismantled 
a family at a time, one family after another, through trial or through drift, is removed. The author says that some had got into the habit of missing the church gatherings. This is the other side of that. If a person doesn't get into the habit of going to church meetings, he will be in the habit of not going. If you wait until Sunday morning to decide whether you'll go to church, chances are you won't go. It's supposed to rain. I don't think we can get there on time. I really didn't get to bed early enough last night. I'd probably sleep through the sermon anyway. I'll go next week. And then the same thing happens next week and the week after that. Before I became a pastor, before I even thought of becoming a pastor, Karen and I were in the habit of going to church. We didn't have to decide if we would go to church this Sunday or three years from Sunday. We already knew. We didn't wait until it was raining and we were sleep-deprived and our kids were fighting to decide whether today was a good day to meet with God's church. Instead of abandoning one another when the church meets, our author expects us to be encouraging one another. It's not just a matter of going to church, but encouraging one another. That's one of his chief concerns. He wrote this letter, he mentioned in the last chapter, as a short word of exhortation, where exhortation is exactly the same word we have translated here as encouragement. In chapter 3, he urges his friends, encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Our author, like the other New Testament letter writers, understood that all of us need help if we're to succeed in following Christ. We need encouragement, admonition, exhortation. We need someone to cheer us on, hold us up, sit us down, send us out. We need to encourage one another in conversation, emails and cards, in teaching, in prayer. We need to hear things like, you're doing a great job, or don't give up. You can do this. I'll help you. Honor the Lord. And even sometimes, stop sinning. This is what church is, not religious entertainment, not interesting stories or scholarly lectures, but people following Jesus, filled with Jesus' spirit, helping other people follow Jesus, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. In his book, The Colors of Hope, Richard Dahlstrom writes about a rock climbing experience he had with his friend, Kevin. Kevin was a veteran climber. And his role, he's called the belayer, his role was to help Richard should he get into trouble. At one point, Richard became so exhausted that he let go, and he fell a few feet and spun around, suspended by his rope. He called down to his friend, I'm done, man. Lower. Lower is the magic word. Kevin was supposed to lower him to the ground as soon as he heard that word. And then congratulate him on trying so hard. You did a good job. Next time we'll be even better. But that's not what happened. Kevin says to him, I'm not lowering you, man. You can climb that. Let me tell the rest of it in his own words. Funny, I say, acknowledging his attempted humor. Lower, please. Not funny, he says. You can Climb 
that. He speaks in staccato, punctuating each word to make sure I hear him. I continue to spin, hanging from the rope about 45 feet in the air. Try it again. Who is this person telling me what I can and can't do? Friends don't let friends dangle in midair. What did I ever like about him? No, really, I'm finished. No, really, you can climb this. He's not going to let me quit. I need new friends. (laughs) I reconnect with the rock, and he tightens the rope as I try again and fall again. Once more, I ask to be lowered. Once more, he refuses. Once more, I try, and this last time, for reasons still unknown to me, I succeed and finish the climb, exhilarated by the triumph. Then Dahlstrom says, Kevin saw something in me I didn't and brought it out. He raised my game, so to speak. That's what our author is talking about, raising one another's game. The kind of encouragement he has in mind is not just easy platitudes. It doesn't just console us after we've failed. It helps us succeed when we don't think we can Succeed in the face of disease, succeed in the face of marital dysfunction, succeed in the face of children who are not doing what they ought. It helps us go on. And this, this is what's supposed to happen in church every week. No, not every week, every day. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is today. If we were to do this, there would be more happy marriages and fewer divorces. More of us would be taking risks standing firm, repenting of our sins, using our gifts and talents. Church would be a little scarier, a lot happier, and totally real. This encouragement stuff is not just the pastor's job. 25 minutes on a Sunday morning, we'll never do it. It's not just the elder's job or the Sunday school teachers or the deacons. It's our job, our calling, every single one of us. So what's the take-home here? How can we apply this? I'm going to lead us in a prayer time in just a moment, asking God to put at least one person on each of our hearts and minds and show us at least one way we can encourage that person. Should we send a card or email, make a phone call, take that person out for coffee, go fishing together, loan him a car for three months or a month? Does he need consolation or strength or admonishment or assistance? Does he need my words? Does he need my help? Open your hearts. Set your will. And take steps of obedience in response to what God will say to you. Let's pray now. Lord, would you put on our hearts and minds right now someone, someone that you love so deeply and that you want to love through us. And I'll give the Lord a minute to do that in your heart or mind. Just be open. Lord, would you show us what we can do, what you want us to do?
how you want to pour love into that person through us. If the Lord's spoken to you, would you just intend right now to deliberately choose before him, tell him that you will choose to love that person, to do the thing that he's put on your heart and mind. Now, Lord, grace us with ideas, with resolution to follow up on those ideas and to act. And God, may there be an outburst of love among us for your great glory and our great good through Jesus. Amen.